The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Greater love has no man than this, than man give his life for his friends, and you are my friends. And uh, Jesus uh, tells us to love, and we love because he has first loved us. And so you get a, if, if you'll pardon my saying it this way, uh, what you get is uh, that Christ demands of us the love that cannot be demanded, right? You see what I'm saying? Uh, the love that legalistically would not be demanded is exactly the love that Jesus asks of us, which, put it another way, love your enemies. Bless them that hate you and persecute you and so on. Amazing difference, see. Uh, the, the, the scribes and Pharisees interpreted the Old Testament quite differently, that you love your friends and hate your enemies. But Jesus rebuked them. He says, if you only uh, love your friends and hate your enemies, the Gentiles do that well. So uh, why, uh, why think that you're showing uh, the effect of the love of God for you. Now, friends, um, do you see? Uh, do you see why I uh, wanted to bring in that parable? Do you see the importance of it? Uh, do you see that what Jesus is teaching is the fulfillment, the realization of the law, the depth of the law? what the law is about, right? See, uh, the law is the law that teaches us of God's caring love for us. I am the Lord your God, which you brought you out of the land of Egypt, and so on. Uh, I've saved you, and now you show love to me. Uh, don't worship idols. Uh, thou shalt love the Lord your God, and then love your neighbor. And... So you're not asking, how many people do I have to love? You're asking, where can I find opportunities to show the love that Christ has shown to me? A completely different relationship, see? Now, I, I want you to see that because we tend to get it backwards because God revealed the Ten Commandments to us before Jesus came. Uh, there's always a temptation that will kind of think legalistically and then think, well, uh, uh, Jesus uh, paid the price to be sure of the law uh, and uh, now I keep the law because I've been made able to keep it by Jesus. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we don't need to be instructed by the details of every commandment. We do. We do have to know what pleases God. But uh, I'm trying to point out how much more we need to know. And what the more that we need to know is that fundamental relationship between God and us and others. And you don't see the fullness of that fundamental relationship till you see it in Jesus Christ. 
Now, in the Old Testament, you see God as your shepherd, yes. But, uh, and you even have typological uh, foreshadowings of God's suffering for his people. Uh, we'll get to that. Uh, but not until you come to Jesus Christ do you see what it really means that uh, God loved us. See, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And you don't get the measure of God's love until Jesus comes. And so you don't understand God's love for us in its depth till you see Jesus. And therefore you don't see our love for God in its depth till you see Jesus. And therefore you don't see how much our love toward others is transformed until you see Jesus. So you don't preach the Ten Commandments as a separate excursion. I really want to free you up with this because uh, if, you, if you love the gospel, as I believe you do, uh, then when you come to preaching on the law, you might start to think, oh boy, I got to do this now, you know, and uh, <laughs> I get into all these questions that people have and <laughs> You know, thou shalt not kill, and do I dare mention abortion in this church uh, uh, with uh, all these choice people that have started to come. Uh, 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 so you, you get into all these, you, you think, oh boy, do I have to go through all this legalistic stuff? And what I'm trying to show you is it isn't legalistic stuff. It's important. It's specific. It shows us what pleases God. It shows us how we're to live. But we see all of it in terms of that love that we're to show to our neighbor, which is modeled on the love that Christ has shown to us. And uh, that, that, that transforms a lot of things, a lot of things. Because uh, that's the source, isn't it, of gentleness and meekness and giving an answer, uh, not in a wrathful way, uh, or not cursing people. Uh, see, in terms of the Old Testament law, before you see all its fulfillment in Christ, uh, you could be cursing your enemies, couldn't you? They deserve it. They're, they're against God and against his will. You could call down the curses of heaven on them. But... Uh, but Jesus says, don't curse them. Don't call down the curses of heaven. God will take care of that. Uh, I, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And uh, we can uh, treat people with meekness because Christ is coming. That's what it says in Philippians. Uh, the Lord is at hand. And that's why we can, uh, we can leave that to him. Uh, because now, here, at this time, uh, Jesus, who came... Uh, not to bring destruction to a sinful planet, but came to save us. Uh, he's given us then this love that we ought to show toward others. Um, I, I hope you see what I'm trying to get at. You know, <laughs> I'm trying to get at the fact that we preach the Old Testament uh, because it's pointing us to Christ. We're preaching it in its specificity, uh, but preaching it always in terms of where it's headed, where it's uh, directed, how it's leading us to Christ. And even the law, we see, 
in the one hand, it condemns us, as Paul points out, that we might have to flee to Christ for mercy. But on the other hand, as it shows us what is pleasing to God, for as Paul also says, the law is holy and just and good, as the law shows us what's pleasing to God, it shows us that which we fulfill by grace, but that which we fulfill way beyond what any ancient Israelite would have thought necessary. We become, in a way, super fulfillers of the law as we fulfill it in Christ. Not super fulfillers in the sense of counting every anise seed to see that a tenth goes to the Lord. That kind of meticulous, legalistic uh, super fulfilling is not what fulfills the law. But what super fulfills the law is to understand the love of the Lord who gave it and the love of Jesus Christ who paid the price of the law and uh, now also enables us by his spirit uh, to uh, fulfill the law. So I'm trying to free you up so that when you preach from the law, you can do good gospel preaching from the law, uh, both in terms of the fact that here's the law you've broken, but Christ has paid the penalty, but also from the fact that uh, given uh, the love of God that wells up in your heart, that's poured out in your heart by his Holy Spirit, Romans 5, uh, given that kind of love, then... Uh, uh, how do we treat one another? Which, of course, is uh, also what you get in the larger catechism as it uh, expounds the positive side of the law, how you show love. In other words, you don't just uh, murder, don't avoid, do not simply avoid murder, <laughs> uh, but you do the things that will promote the, uh, the health and the happiness of others you become pro-life uh, in terms of realizing the love of God. Well, the, um, this all points uh, toward the uh, goal of covenantal realization. But... Uh, the history of let's look at the outline for a minute. History of redemption centers on Christ. A, redemption is initiated by the Lord. One, in his redeeming act, covenantal liberation. Two, in his abiding presence, covenantal relation. And three, in his sovereign word, covenantal law. Now we come to B, uh, directed by the Lord. And uh, the Lord, who redeemed Israel from Egypt, led them through the desert to the promised land. He didn't lead, lead them uh, by the shortest way. He was not interested in rapid transportation. He was interested in education. And in Deuteronomy 8, he says that he led them all that way to prove them, to see what was in their heart, uh, whether they would love him or not and to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So the Lord led them in the way of covenantal testing. And Jesus was uh, tempted in the wilderness. And there again, you have an analogy, don't you? 
Israel 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, Israel led by God in the wilderness, Jesus driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Israel tested in the wilderness, Jesus tested in the wilderness. And uh, as uh, Satan tests Jesus, Jesus replies every time to the testing by a quotation from what book? Deuteronomy, right. And why Deuteronomy? Well, of course, uh, it refers to the testing of Israel, and Jesus Christ comes as the true Israel to be uh, successful and uh, obedient where uh, Israel had been disobedient and rebellious. And, uh, and it's interesting that to the first temptation, Jesus replies with a quote from Deuteronomy 8, that quote I just mentioned, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And as Gerhardus Voss has pointed out, um, the word that proceeds out of the mouth of God there has in view uh, not simply the Ten Commandments, but also the word of God's guidance through the desert. That is, God commanded where they were to uh, strike camp and march and where they were to uh, pitch camp and uh, stay. So they were led point by point by God through the wilderness. Uh, ex Exodus 17.1 talks about their going at God's command. So uh, here they went at God's command into the desert and Jesus in the desert appears to be abandoned by God. And that was where Israel cried out, is God among us or not? And they implied that he wasn't. Uh, but uh, Jesus doesn't say, uh, is my father with me or not? He's uh, absolutely faithful. And then Satan comes and suggests to Jesus that enough is enough. That, uh, you know, 40 days of fasting and he's almost uh, collapsing and uh, it's, uh, uh, he's got to do something about it. Uh, God hasn't done anything. His father hasn't done anything all this time. So he better take care of himself and... If he is the son of God, uh, then he has miraculous powers. Uh, uh, that's what those things are in that first drawing. I have to tell you that. But they're, uh, you can't tell what they are. That's because they're supposed to look like stones, but look as though they could turn into bread. And I, I guess the artistry didn't bring it off. But with my explanation, uh, you can appreciate it. Uh, so uh, uh, Jesus looks at these stones and Satan says, well, just turn them into bread and then you can eat. Uh, your father hasn't given you any bread in the wilderness. There's no manna that's come for you, right? So uh, you better come up with your own manna. You turn the stones into bread. And Jesus, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Uh, and that's the reason Voss says what he says is uh, he has to live by the word of God, doesn't he? That means uh, he must trust his father, yes. It also means he must trust his father where his father's put him. See, he's come there at the word of God. And because of that, he stays where God has put him and uh, he won't rebel against his father. Uh, he will live by the word of God. He will trust that God will provide in that place where God has brought him. Uh, marvelous, of course, for us to know that so that we won't cut faith short. We often think uh, we'll believe up to a point, you know, but uh, then there reaches the point where we can't believe it anymore. And that's where we, uh, we think we have to bring an end to faith. But uh, Jesus didn't do that. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then uh, Satan went on with two other temptations, you'll remember. 
the, uh, the temptation to turn the stones into bread. And uh, then, uh, well, let's just uh, turn uh, to the, the Matthew chapter there and uh, look at that <coughs> description of those temptations. <coughs> four, Matthew chapter 4. The uh, first one, man shall not live by bread alone. Verse 5, then the devil taketh him into the holy city, Matthew 4, verse 5, and he set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, uh, if thou art the son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee. On their hands they shall bear thee up, lest haply uh, thou dash thy foot uh, against a stone. Now, uh, <clears throat> That's very interesting, isn't it, that uh, Satan can quote scripture. You've all heard that. Uh, but maybe you haven't noticed that Satan knows where to stop when he quotes scripture. Um, if you're going to use scripture for your own purposes, you often have to know when to stop. But uh, uh, listen to this uh, next verse. You, maybe some of you know what it is. He, uh, this is Psalm 91, uh, verse 11. He will give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. That's what Satan quoted. But it goes on. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent shalt thou trample underfoot. <laughs> well, the... Uh, uh, but uh, the, what's the temptation there? Well, Satan tells Jesus from this pinnacle of the temple, the wings of the temple, you know, under his wings thou shalt find refuge. Well, here right in the wings of the temple. He says, uh, just uh, jump, jump. Uh, and what's the temptation there? Well, uh, <coughs> if you're the son of God, you know that uh, Psalm 91 is a messianic psalm. Uh, Satan didn't have to be told that 91 was a messianic psalm. Uh, so uh, if this applies to you, if you're the true child of God, the ultimate uh, one, well then, uh, the angels will bear you up. And uh, if you are the son of God, uh, it'll be proven once and for all, right? And there won't be any point in any temptation anymore because you'll know. You'll know that you're the son of God. And, uh, and it'll all be taken care of. But of course, if you just uh, are crushed when you hit the temple pavement, well, then it's all over, but it's better to have it all over than to live under the false impression that you're the son of God when you're not, or that your father will take care of you when he won't. Uh, but anyway, uh, get it over with. Find out right now, yes or no. Uh, let, let's not have this walk by faith business. Let's uh, uh, let's get it straight and clear. So, ever hear Satan talk to you that way? Uh, get it figured out. And, and you know what Jesus says to him: uh, "You shall not make trial of the Lord your God." <laughs> See, don't tempt him. Jesus says, "It isn't my Father who's being tested. I'm the one who's being tested," which is exactly the answer we got to know. Uh, uh, because we're always acting like Israel and thinking that it's God who's on trial, and yet we're the ones who are on trial. And then uh, the last temptation, uh, he, uh, Satan says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world if you'll fall down and worship me. All the kingdoms. Well, you say, this is stupid. 
if Jesus wouldn't give to the, into those first two temptations, what makes Satan think that Jesus will bow down and worship him? I mean, to turn stones into bread, that makes some sense. Or even to uh, uh, jump from the temple and uh, prove that he's the son of God, that might make sense. But to bow down and worship Satan, that's a, a pretty open and naked disobedience and rebellion, isn't it? Why does he think uh, Jesus would do that? Well, of course, uh, Satan was forced to the last temptation because Jesus wouldn't yield to the others. <laughs> this is the bottom line. Uh, but also, uh, it's his best offer. I don't know what he offered you recently, but it wasn't everything in the whole world, was it? I mean, uh, 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 this, is, this is the best he can come up with. This is everything. <laughs> all the glory of all the kingdoms in the world. <laughs> Uh, this is what I'll give you uh, if you just uh, worship me. Uh, Malcolm Muggeridge said that if uh, this temptation came in recent times, uh, it would have a little different form. If uh, Jesus came to earth in these days, uh, Satan would tempt him in this way. He would say, uh, look, you want to get your message out to the <coughs> maximum audience, right? Well, I can fix you up with that. I'll get you on uh, worldwide television by satellite and you, you can uh, address, uh, put you on everywhere, prime time, all around the world. And you can present your gospel at once to uh, an audience that will be greater than the listening numbers of the Super Bowl. Uh, Muggeridge didn't say that. But anyway, I'll give you all, I'll give you coverage, total coverage, universal coverage. Uh, and all you have to do is say, in one brief little 20-second uh, commercial, uh, this comes to you courtesy of Lucifer, uh, of the powers of darkness. You, you just say that, and uh, then you get your message out to everybody. Uh, Muggeridge uh, made a good point, I think. Uh, you see, uh, uh, the, the last temptation is, <laughs> I'll give you everything you've come to do, uh, but uh, all you have to do is say you owe it to me. Uh, uh, and, of course, it involves... Uh, I, I've often thought about that. Does it involve uh, uh, Jesus is not going to the cross? Uh, I wonder about that. Uh, because uh, Satan wanted to crucify him, certainly, didn't he? Uh, Satan was caught by his own hatred, ultimately. Well, uh, you see what I'm getting at here, that it's directed by the Lord in the way of covenantal testing. And who is it that's borne all the covenantal testing for us? Jesus Christ. And who is it that delivers and guides us and leads us through all the covenantal testing? Answer, Jesus Christ. Okay, we'll take a break now, and then we have one more hour for today's uh, classes. <clears throat> The Lord himself, then, leads his people through the desert. Uh, they are led in the way of covenantal testing, guided by the word of the Lord, and uh, guided by the Lord himself, who is uh, present uh, with them. <clears throat> of course, God's present by the cloud, isn't he, as he leads them through the desert? When they enter the land under Joshua, you remember how uh, Joshua, having crossed the Jordan with Israel, 
looks at the walled city of Jericho and sees what his first assignment has to be to try to uh, conquer that apparently impregnable city. And uh, then there approaches him that man with a drawn sword in his hand. And uh, Joshua says, uh, are you with us or with them, <laughs> friend or foe? <laughs> and the, the man says, you've got it wrong, Joshua. Is not, am I with you? It's that you're with me. <laughs> I'm the captain of the Lord's host. <laughs> you thought you were, Joshua. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I am. <laughs> and uh, and uh, then uh, the Lord proceeded to tell him what the strategy was for conquering Jericho. <laughs> Just march around the place and the walls would fall down. <clears throat> well, the uh, <clears throat> the point is, uh, the way in which God le leads the people is always by his own presence. Whether it's through Moses or through Joshua, it's the Lord himself who is the leader of his people. And we find in uh, the, uh, in the uh, law of the Lord, uh, we find also the pattern of covenantal judgment. And you get this especially at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, where you have recorded first all the blessings that God will bring upon the people if they are faithful to the covenant. And then you have all the curses that will be poured out upon them if they are unfaithful. And then uh, they are told that when they enter the land, half of the tribes of Israel are to go up into Mount Gerizim and recite the blessings. And then the other half were to go up into Mount Ebal and recite the curses. But then, amazingly, after the blessing and after the cursing, uh, after all of these things are not only threatened, but as the book of Deuteronomy itself makes plain, they're not only threatened but fulfilled. And after they're all fulfilled and the people are scattered all over the, uh, the place in exile, uh, that then... God will have compassion on their captivity and return. This is Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 4. If any of your outcasts be in the uttermost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, from thence will he fetch thee, and the Lord will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and so on. Verse 6. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. There it is, you see. I will circumcise your heart. So you get first the, the, the blessings, then the curses, and then after that, the latter days, the eschatology of the Old Testament, what God will ultimately do. And what he will ultimately do is to circumcise their hearts. Now, there you have the overall scheme for the whole history of the Old Testament. For first comes the blessing. The people are brought into the land under Joshua. The covenant is renewed. There's the troubled times of the judges. And then God raises up uh, the kingship and David becomes king. David conquers Jerusalem becomes his capital, uh, the place where God will set his name is uh, found, and David uh, 
would like to build the temple, but God tells him, no, David, uh, you're a man of blood. Uh, you won't build the temple. Uh, but uh, David, you love me, and you wanted to build a house for me. And so, David, uh, you won't build the house for me, but I will build the house for you. Uh, and uh, of your seed, I will raise up uh, one to uh, sit on the throne. There won't lack one to sit on your throne. Uh, so there's the coming of the Messiah promised uh, to, of uh, the seed of David. So there is the blessing uh, repeated to David. And then David made preparation for the building of the te temple, even though he didn't build it. Solomon, his son, built it. And when Solomon dedicated the temple, 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, he blessed the people. And in blessing the people, he said to the Lord, Lord, all the promises that you gave through Moses, they've all been fulfilled. You promised us the land, and we have it. You promised the place where you would set your name, and we have it. You promised to dwell among us, and uh, that you've done. And uh, I'm, I've built your house, and uh, you have the place now where you dwell. So all the promises, Lord, are now fulfilled. And uh, wonderful, isn't it? The very peak of uh, blessedness. But how far do you go from the pinnacle of blessing before you go down that uh, dreadful slope to the nadir of destruction? Not very long, right? King Solomon himself, the one who pronounced the blessing, stands on the sl slope of the Mount of Olives, right across the valley of the Kidron from where his temple is built. And there behind him is the temple in the gold and the cedar. And uh, what's Solomon doing? He's uh, providing a shrine for Chemosh, the god of the Moabites. Hmm. There. Solomon had wisdom, didn't he? But what did he forget? That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's what he forgot. He had wisdom. He had a small country, and there were superpowers in those days, too. And so how does a small country make out with the superpowers? Well, you can't beat them, so you join them, right? You make treaties. So Solomon made lots of treaties. And, uh, of course, the best way to seal a treaty is uh, to seal it by marriage uh, to uh, uh, a daughter uh, of the king of whatever country you're making a treaty with. Because uh, uh, kings are a little more reluctant to invade countries where their daughters are princesses. And uh, don't forget, princesses tend to have grandchildren besides. And even ancient oriental um, emperors... Uh, had some fondness for their grandchildren. You understand that? Uh, I have 19 grandchildren, so I, I understand that pretty well by now. Uh, but uh, that's wonderful things for your prayer life, to have 19 grandchildren, let me tell you. <laughs> but uh, they're, 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 here, here are uh, these kings, and they're all in covenant with Solomon, right? So uh, they don't invade him. So well, they have peace, prosperity, everything's fine, right? But how is everything fine? By disobeying the commandment of the Lord, by uh, 
marrying heathen women. And that's against what God commanded. So there it starts. Shrine to Chemosh, the god of the Moabites. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or the earth beneath. But Solomon, for one of his wives, who's a worshiper of Chemosh, he builds a shrine to Chemosh. And of course, uh, the kingdom isn't taken from Solomon because of uh, the Lord's favor toward David, his father, but the kingdom is taken away in the days of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, when the ten tribes in the north are broken off under Jeroboam from the, uh, Judah in the south, and Israel is divided. And then the northern tribes all go into captivity, and ultimately Judah also goes into captivity. So uh, all the threats will be fulfilled. But, promise of Deuteronomy, after the blessing and after the curse, then at last there comes the time of restoration. And so we'll, we'll be looking at that, see how that develops as we look at the history. But uh, let's be remembering that the times and seasons are appointed by God himself. And therefore, uh, when we read the history of redemption, uh, we realize what God is doing, that the times and seasons that the Father has set in his own power are times and seasons that will accomplish uh, what his purpose really is. And therefore, the history of all these times and seasons uh, is not just open-ended. It isn't just a, a raw account of events that happened. The whole history of the, of the Bible is covenantal history, isn't it? It's all revealing what God's plan ultimately is. And God's plan ultimately is to send uh, Christ into the world. So after it isn't just moralistic, uh, but it is uh, redemptive historical. It's the, the story of what God has done in his history of redemption. <clears throat> well, we'll have time uh, a little later to talk about the difference between this approach and a moralistic approach to Old Testament history. And then this... Uh, uh, history of redemption, which is uh, initiated by the Lord and directed uh, by the Lord, uh, is also uh, history which is recorded by the Lord. Uh, he records it as a witness. Uh, first, uh, prophetic mediation. The prophets come bringing the word of the Lord to the people, thus saith the Lord. Moses was the great prophet servant of the Lord. And in Deuteronomy 18, Moses says that God will raise up uh, another prophet like unto him. And that is uh, evident, uh, first of all, in terms of the uh, prophets like Moses, but of course, ultimately, in Christ himself. Now, the prophets keep calling the people back to the covenant. And again and again, there are times of covenantal renewal when the people repent and come back to God. But the prophets are also recorders. They are keeping record of what happens in the history of the covenant. Uh, I've suggested that the term matzkir, which means recorder or remembrancer, 
And uh, the Matzkir is mentioned in the court of David uh, that uh, he had this official. Now, that's very interesting that he would have a remembrancer. Uh, what did the Matzkir do? What was he remembering, this remembrancer in the court of David? Well, presumably, he acted somewhat as a prosecuting attorney, that he would uh, uh, bring witness against people who were unfaithful to the covenant so that charges could be brought against the enemies of the king. Uh, but uh, presumably, he also kept the record of those who had supported the king. You remember uh, in the book of Esther uh, that uh, uh, the king, when he can't sleep at night, has the court's records brought to him as uh, a good soporific. And uh, as he's reading through these records, uh, he comes across uh, an account of how Mordecai had uh, done him a big favor and helped him out. So he knew he, he owed Mordecai one. And so that becomes important in the story of Esther. Well, I presume the Matzkir did something like that. He recorded the things where people had been faithful. Only, you see, uh, he's not mainly a king's officer. He's mainly God's officer. He's calling to remembrance the covenant and what God had promised. And that's what all the prophets do. They're all Matzkirs, in a sense, Matzkirim. Uh, they are uh, calling to a memory where God was faithful and where the people were unfaithful. So it's a covenantal record. Uh, you read Kings, you see that, don't you? Uh, uh, the, a king is introduced that uh, he walked, a few kings, he walked in the steps of his father David. And then many kings, he walked in the steps of Jeroboam who caused Israel to sin. Uh, so uh, uh, you get this record of whether kings... Uh, uh, walked in obedience to the Lord or whether they were disobedient. Uh, so you get a, prof a prophetic record of covenant faithfulness and of course it's God's faithfulness but it's Israel's uh, unfaithfulness. And then the prophetic uh, message uh, of uh, the um, uh, warning and the promise as in Jeremiah 25.4. Uh, there's always the message that uh, if they walk in the way of the Lord, God will deliver them. But if they are unfaithful, uh, then God will judge them. So you get the uh, prophetic uh, record of covenantal uh, faithfulness uh, and then the warning and the promise. And this all leads to the prophetic promise of covenantal renewal. The prophetic promise of covenantal renewal. And that teaches us that uh, this will all be fulfilled by God himself. There's a little difference from this overhead and the outline, but it follows the same thread. The prophetic promise of covenantal renewal, God will come to save when the Lord comes to fulfill all his promises. And uh, this says, first of all, that God must come. God must come because the situation is too hopeless for any other Savior. God must come. Uh, you see that in Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, don't you? 
Uh, here's Israel in captivity. And what's the condition of the people? What do the people look like? And so God has uh, Ezekiel look across this valley, and there's Israel. Well, they're not in good shape. Uh, to begin with, they're dead. Uh, and uh, not only are they dead, but uh, uh, they're just down to the bones. All that's left are bones. And the bones aren't even assembled. They're scattered on the valley floor. Uh, in Lima, Peru, uh, they had been collecting bones of uh, um, saintly people and uh, heroes and uh, people who ought to be remembered. Uh, they had kept their bones and they had lots of bones and they'd gotten into disarray. So they figured they needed to organize the bones. So they got somebody in to organize the bones uh, who uh, uh, didn't have uh, the uh, Library of Congress system or anything. Uh, and so uh, he organized the bones for them, all the femurs together, all the tibias together, uh, all the, the bones were classified bone by bone and uh, all kept. Uh, a curious way of uh, assembling bones. But uh, in this vision, the bones are sorted out not by femurs, but by individuals. <laughs> And so you get complete skeletons. And then uh, the Lord, but even before that, of course, the Lord says to Ezekiel, the key question, son of man, can these bones live? Of course, Ezekiel's been around the Lord for a while, so he doesn't give the obvious answer. Uh, he says, Lord, you know. <laughs> no telling what you might do. <laughs> and so he says, prophesy. So Ezekiel prophesies, and lo and behold, it happens. They all come together, bone to his bone, you know. The neck bone connects to the head bone. The head bone connects to the backbone. And all the bones come together. And then he prophesies, you know, and they're covered with flesh and the spirit of the Lord moves upon them and breath of life is given to them and they all stand up and live. Now, the point of that prophecy, you know, is to show that uh, only God can do anything about the condition of Israel. Look at them. See, uh, it's, uh, David, you bring back David and you give him a valley of dry bones, he can't do anything, right? <laughs> You bring back Solomon and you give him uh, scattered bones in exile all over the place. Solomon can't do anything. Treaties won't help at this point. So what, what's going to restore Israel? Uh, only the Spirit of God. See, only, only God can do it. And, uh, you know, the Lord keeps showing that through the whole history of redemption. You know, another thing to think about as you go through the history of redemption is not only the periods, the epochs of redemption, uh, that I uh, drew that little uh, rainbow, you know, the, the, the rainbow arching over the periods of redemption. They're not only the periods of redemption, they're the themes that keep running through the whole history of redemption. And one of the themes that keeps running through is uh, how impossible things get again and again and again uh, before God gives the blessing. <laughs> Uh, God seems intent on making things hard for himself. Uh, he, he wants to show that it's his work and not man's work. Uh, so uh, 
Israel isn't brought out of Egypt, you know, until they're all pinned against the, the, the sea and the Pharaoh's chariots have them surrounded and they're all in back. It's when their situation's absolutely hopeless that uh, Moses says, stand still and see the glory of God. <laughs> it's God who opens the sea and the way goes through. And that's the way it is again and again and again in the history of Israel. It was that way way back in Genesis uh, before... Uh, you know, God promised Abraham he would have a son, right? And uh, he, he kept promising it, but Abraham kept not having a son. And uh, Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. And, and God uh, told Abraham again, you're going to have a son. And uh, Abraham, the man of faith who trusted God, what did he do? Fell on his face and laughed. He says, Lord, this is getting ridiculous. This is too much. Uh, Cut it out. I mean, come on. This is, uh, this is absurd. I mean, it's all right to give promises, but that I have a son at my age, at Sarah will have a son at her age. This is, this is funny. And uh, he laughed. And then remember the, the three angelic visitants? Of course, one of them is the Lord, uh, comes to and repeats the promise again. And this time Sarah laughs. And she's... Uh, uh, she was in the, in the tent and she's just by the tent door and she laughs and uh, the angel says, you laughed. And she says, oh, no, no. She's very embarrassed, you know. I, I didn't laugh, not me, no, no. And, oh, yes, you laughed. Now, why does he insist that she laughed? He wants it on the record that she laughed uh, because the time comes around, she has Isaac and she names him Laughter which uh, is the name that God said uh, she was to give to this son. Uh, call him laughter, you see, because uh, in Psalm 2, you have God uh, laughing at the fool who thinks he can throw off God's uh, 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 cords from him. Uh, but there's another laughter of God, not just the laughter of judgment, laughing at the fool, but the laughter of grace, the laughter that gives Isaac uh, in answer to the promise. And you have that uh, beautiful uh, chapter in um, uh, Genesis uh, where the son uh, is given to Abraham, uh, chapter 21. <clears throat> and the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. That's, the time is very important. <laughs> uh, not in Abraham's time, not in Sarah's time, and not in the time of the flesh, but in the time of the spirit. In God's time, in the time that he had appointed, the son is born. And Abraham called the name of the son that was born unto him. Sarah bore to him Isaac, laughter. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God has made me to laugh. <laughs> Everyone that hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should give children suck, that Sarah should nurse a child? For I have borne him a son in his old age. See, Sarah says, this is ridiculous at my age. You know, here I'm holding this little baby. <laughs> and she says, I'm laughing. And everybody that will hear it, they'll laugh too. Uh, they'll, they'll say, uh, this is absolutely incredible. And so uh, what's the point of that? See, why do you have stories like that in, in the history of God's dealings with his people? 
obviously he's going to show that in his time, in his way, he will do his work of salvation. So here is the one who is the son of the promise. Not the son according to the flesh, as Paul points out when he discusses it, but the son according to the spirit. Uh, the son Isaac, the son laughter, who shows the triumph of God's incredible grace. And uh, Jesus Christ is uh, the true Isaac, you see. He is the one in whom the grace of God triumphs over all the impossibilities. Because if it was impossible for Sarah to have a child at 90, uh, when uh, her husband was a hundred, uh, how much more impossible for the Virgin Mary to bear a son uh, without uh, her husband's involvement at, at all. Uh, that he would be born uh, of a virgin, born uh, Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, you see, if you don't bring that home to Christ, uh, you've lost a lot of the force of it. <laughs> Uh, you've got to realize that Christ is the true Isaac, uh, that it's in Christ that you hear the laughter of God's grace uh, triumphing over the impossibility uh, of our situation. Uh, so God must come uh, because uh, he's the only one that can deliver. Uh, Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones, uh, but also because the promises of God are so great that only God can make good on them. And that's uh, the reason for that little uh, symbol in uh, Zechariah 14.20, uh, where it talks about the glory of the latter days. Uh, when God's promises are fulfilled in that day, uh, every pot in Jerusalem will be like a temple vessel. That shakes you up a bit, doesn't it? every pot in Jerusalem like a holy vessel to the Lord. And uh, uh, that uh, the, the word holiness to the Lord that used to be on the golden plate that was worn in the tiara of the high priest, uh, that's going to be on the horse's bridles. Uh, bumper stickers, you know. Uh, isn't, isn't that absolutely incredible? that uh, this is the holiness. And in that day, when uh, that glory is finally poured out and God sets everything right, in that day, the weakest inhabitant in Jerusalem will be like King David. Everybody in Jerusalem will be a hero like David. And what will the king be like? In the 12th chapter of Jeremiah, we have the answer as the angel of the Lord among us. See? God himself. That's the point. The situation is so bad that only God can fix it. And the promises are so great that only God can make good on them. You know, if, if God wouldn't promise so much, he'd be easier to believe, wouldn't he? I mean, doesn't God keep destroying his own credibility by promising the impossible? Uh, if he would just promise uh, uh, to help us out a little bit, you know, if he would give some suggestions as to what kind of health plan might really uh, meet the needs in America, and uh, that, that, that'd, be that'd be credible, wouldn't it? I mean, he'd give you a little help on that. Uh, but uh, when he promises a new heavens and a new earth and a resurrection body, 
and, uh, and he promises a new birth and promises to make all things new, then people say, that's too good to be true. Uh, you know, nobody disbelieves God because he hasn't promised enough. They disbelieve because he's promised too much. But uh, that's the point, you see. Uh, the situation's so bad, only God can fix it, and uh, the promises are so great that only God can make good on them. So God will have to come. Now, that's really the overview of what all the prophets are saying all the time. They all say how bad the situation is, and they all say how great the promises of God are. Uh, but the point is, uh, God is going to do it. He's going to fulfill uh, the promises uh, himself. <clears throat> And God will come. He must come and he will come. He will come because he is the true shepherd. Uh, I was talking about that in the chapel period. Uh, Isaiah 40. Uh, he comes as the shepherd. Uh, he feeds his people. He feeds his flock. He carries the lambs in his bosom and gently leads those that are with young. Uh, he is the shepherd. Prepare ye in the desert a highway for our God. Uh, why a highway in the desert? Well, because God came up through the desert in the first exodus, didn't he? He led, up, led Israel through the desert. So uh, he's going to come again. There's going to be a second exodus. Uh, there's going to be a second great time of restoration and renewal when God himself comes as the true shepherd. In Ezekiel 34, God says, uh, uh, My shepherds, the shepherds of my people Israel, they haven't been faithful shepherds. They haven't taken care of the sheep. They haven't gathered the scattered sheep. Uh, they have uh, eaten the meat of the flock. They've clothed themselves with the wool. They've exploited the sheep, but they haven't cared for the sheep. And God says, since they haven't done it, I'm coming. I'll be the shepherd. I'll take care of my sheep. I'll watch over them. Uh, and a uh, uh, beautiful passage in Ezekiel uh, 34 which ties in with uh, uh, the, the chapel message, too, of the Lord is our shepherd. Um, notice uh, what God says there. Uh, verse 11 of, of Ezekiel 34. Thus saith the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I myself, even I, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. He'll go looking for them, right? <laughs> As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he's among his sheep that are scattered abroad, so I will seek out my sheep. I'll deliver them out of the places where they've been scattered, etc. Verse 14, I'll feed them with good pasture. Verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord Yahweh. I will seek that which was lost, will bring back that which was driven away, will bind up that which is broken, strengthen that which is sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy, I will feed them in justice. The Lord himself comes to be the shepherd of his sheep. You see, when, no, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he's not just uh, coming up with a new idea. He's He's claiming to fulfill Ezekiel 34. Because Ezekiel 34 says not only that God will be the shepherd, uh, but he says, um, verse 23, And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he 
shall feed them, even my servant David, he shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David, prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken it. Now, you see, in that passage in uh, Ezekiel, there's still a distinction uh, between the Messiah, the, 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 the uh, son of David, who will be the king, and the Lord, who will be the shepherd. And uh, we're told that both are shepherds. Uh, God is the, the shepherd, but the, the Messiah also is the one shepherd. And yet there's one shepherd. God's the shepherd, the Messiah's the shepherd, but there's one shepherd. It's a, it's a drawing together of uh, the, the, the Lord and the servant. And the prophecies of the Old Testament continue, as we'll see, uh, to bring the two together, uh, the Lord and the servant. Uh, God will come as the true shepherd. God will come as the divine warrior, Isaiah 59, 16. Uh, the shepherds haven't taken care of the people, and neither have the warriors defended the people. And therefore, God says, I'll come. I'll be the warrior. Uh, some of you have had Tremper Longman and heard him talk about uh, the divine warrior. He's done a lot of study of that, of that point. Uh, but God comes and puts on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness. And he comes armed with his own righteousness. And he will vindicate his people. He will defend them. Uh, he will be their deliverer. Uh, so God will come as the shepherd and God will come as the warrior and the prince. And uh, God will come also in order uh, to pay the price of sin. Uh, and you find that uh, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 63, I, I mentioned that in passing this morning. I'll read it now. Isaiah chapter 63. <clears throat> verse 8 uh, for he said surely they are my people children that will not deal falsely so he was their savior in all their affliction he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity he redeemed them and he bore them and carried them all the days of old uh, God will come as the true shepherd he will care for the people and as the shepherd you see he comes in compassion he comes in pity he comes to share their condition and, and their need. Uh, and that is, uh, it's very important to realize that he identifies with them. And uh, a great passage describing that identity is in the 17th chapter of Exodus. Uh, as God brings the Israelites out of Egypt and they come into the desert, they come to the wilderness of Rephidim and there's no water there. And uh, the people cry out in their thirst. Uh, not just because they're thirsty, but because uh, this is mortal danger. You know, in that climate, if you don't drink water uh, within hours at times, uh, uh, you, dr you die of uh, dehydration. Uh, it happens very quickly. And so here are these people. They must have had some water still with them in their water bo bottles, so they couldn't have proceeded that far. But now there's no water. It's all running out, and they're going to die. And so the question is, is the Lord among us or not? God said he would be in the midst of us. Is he in the midst? No, he's not. That's what they imply. That's how the passage closes. Is the Lord among us or not? That's their cry. No, he's not, is their implication. And uh, 
they really want to accuse God. Uh, but uh, they're accusing Moses. They want to stone him. And to stone Moses does not mean that uh, it'd be mob violence. Uh, stoning is judicial at execution by the whole community. The point of stoning is you don't know who did it, so you can't have vengeance on him later. Uh, it's the whole community does it. And so they want to execute Moses by stoning. And Moses says, in effect, why do you want to stone me? I didn't bring you here. The Lord brought you here. I brought you here at the command of the Lord. And it's at the Lord, of course, that they, against the Lord that they're really rebelling. And so the place is called Massa and Meribah. Now, uh, Massa means to test or to put on trial. And Meribah uh, means uh, to institute a law case. And the root is the Hebrew root reeve, uh, which has that meaning of a judicial trial. And it's used that way throughout the Bible to describe a judicial situation. In the fifth chapter of Micah, God calls uh, the nations to witness in the great uh, controversy that he has with Israel, the case that he has with Israel. Uh, we use the word case sometimes in the sense of a law case, don't we? Or suit. Well, Israel is bringing suit against God. And that's why it's called Meribah. It's the place of the suit, the place of the case. And Israel's case is accusing God of uh, covenant breaking because he brought them to the wilderness. It's abandoning them there. They're all going to die of thirst. That's how they see it. And uh, since they bring these charges, uh, what does Moses say? Uh, well, God tells them what to do. God says to Moses, Take in your hand the rod with which you struck the Nile, the river of Egypt, and turned it into blood. Now that rod is the symbol of divine justice, you see. It's the symbol of God's authority and power. So take, like, it's like a gavel in a courtroom, only more. Uh, take in your hand the rod of God's judgment. In Isaiah 30, there's a description of the time when the rod of God's judgment, God will bring his rod down upon uh, the uh, oppressor and with the sound of taborets and the trumpets and so on, there'll come the judgment of the Lord when the rod of God descends. So take the rod of God in your hand, take the rod of judgment, and uh, then go forth before all Israel, public occasion. Take with you the elders of Israel, the judges of Israel, right? And then the most amazing statement in the whole Old Testament, in a sense, God says, I will stand before you there upon the rock. Now, God doesn't come before men. He doesn't stand before men. Men stand before him. Uh, in that, you know, in the book of Deuteronomy, when there's a, a trial, uh, people come and stand before God. And uh, uh, as they stand before God, God judges them and uh, uh, Verse uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25. If there be a controversy, there it is again, a reeve, a controversy uh, between men, and they come into judgment, and the judges judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, and it shall be if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten, that the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten before his face according to his wickedness by number. And of course, the number of stripes uh, of blows was limited uh, so they wouldn't actually kill the man. But the man comes before the judge. And if he's found guilty, he lies down. The judge takes the, the um, rod and he beats the man uh, according, to the, the, according to his wickedness. 
Now, God comes and stands before Moses. And he tells Moses to lift the rod and to bring it down on the rock. Now, not on God himself. He doesn't strike into the Shekinah glory. That would be too much. But he strikes the rock on which God stands and with which God is identified. Don't forget God's name is the rock in the songs of Moses. God, our rock, his work is perfect. Their rock is not like our rock. And the rock, therefore, is a name for God. And in the same Psalms that mention Massa and Meribah, God is called a rock in Psalm 95, for example. So God, our rock, is the one who receives the blow. God comes, stands in the prisoner's dock, and uh, he receives the blow of judgment. He's accused. He stands as the accused. And he receives the blow as though he were guilty in order that from the rock there might flow the water that would provide them with life. After World War II in uh, West Berlin, uh, a play was put on by a man, uh, written by Gunther Rutenborn, and in that play, uh, a very vivid play, uh, the whole question was the Holocaust. And this is in West Berlin right after World War II. And uh, the, the, uh, the players... Uh, walk among the people uh, while they're doing their lines. And they're involving the people in the play, really, because what they're talking about is who knew what? What did you know and when did you know it <laughs> uh, regarding the Holocaust? See? And uh, as they talk, they draw people in, ask them questions. What did you know? Did you know... <laughs> Did you know what went on? Did you know about those uh, cattle cars? Uh, did you know about the concentration camps? Uh, that's how they did it, going around. And then they, uh, uh, they talked to one another, you see. And one of the women uh, was just a housewife. All she was doing, trying to feed her family with a ration stamp. She didn't uh, claim she didn't know anything. And uh, another was a businessman. He's in the steel business, providing steel for armaments. So... Uh, he was just doing his job as a businessman, as he'd always done it. He, he didn't know anything about it. And uh, then there was a stormtrooper. Well, yeah, he did know something about it. Uh, but uh, he said, no, uh, the real problem is not what I did. I just followed my orders. The, the orders came from higher up. And uh, then there's the second scene. And it gets a little more intense. And they begin to show one another up. Uh, yeah, the woman, the housewife, she knew something about it all, right? And the businessman, he even knew what the train schedules were. And, and uh, uh, the, uh, the man who was the stormtrooper, he was deeply involved in it himself. So they all did know about it. They all say that, yes, we did know. And notice they're bringing in people sitting there, you know, did you know? <laughs> it must have taken pretty brave actors and actresses to do it. But... Uh, uh, then, uh, uh, then they said, well, then, you know, who, 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 who of us are guilty? And uh, then they all said, oh, wait a minute. The real guilt is higher up. We just did what we were told. We, we aren't the guilty people. Who are guilty? And they said, well, of course, uh, the Nazis were guilty. But uh, who is really guilty? And they said, God was guilty. God was guilty because he let this Holocaust happen in his world. So in one way or other, he's responsible. So they said, let's put God on trial. So they do. They bring God in and put him on trial. And uh, 
they find he's guilty because he was God, he was the Lord God, he had the power, it did happen, therefore he's guilty. And he's the ultimately guilty one, they say. So then they have to sentence God. So what sentence will they give him? And one man says, well, I lost a son in the war. Let God lose the son. And another man says, uh, well, it was the Jews that did all that suffering. Let God know what it is to be a Jew. Make him come into this world as a Jew. And then somebody else said, uh, those Jews died those agonizing deaths in the gas chambers, so let God die an agonizing death as a Jew. The man who wrote the play, Gunther Rutenborn, was a Lutheran pastor. And uh, he really wrote a magnificent answer to the whole problem of the Holocaust, you see. Uh, because although God was not guilty, as we would charge, it wasn't God who was on trial, it was Israel who was on trial. God wasn't guilty. But God paid the price as though he were guilty. And uh, that's why John points out that a spear was thrust into the side of Christ and there flowed out blood and water and water. And uh, it's why uh, Paul says the rock in 1 Corinthians 10, the rock that followed them was Christ. When God bore the stroke in the rock in a symbol, it was a sign that the people were guilty, not God but that the only hope of redemption was that God would pay the price. I was only in Israel once many years ago. I traveled in with a, a Sabra, a, a native Israeli who was raised uh, on Hebrew as his first language. Uh, I asked him what God was like. And he gave me the most incredible answer. There's got to be a force somewhere. There's got to be some center of unity in the universe, we guess, uh, but we can't know. It couldn't be less of Old Testament, conceivably. Just a modern idea of God, you know, whatever God may be. And uh, I had my little Hebrew Bible with me, and I gave it to him, and he read. I, I gave him that passage and asked him to read it, uh, and he read it. And then uh, I talked about what it meant with him a little bit, that God was receiving the stroke as though he were guilty. And I said... Uh, is your God like that? And he just quickly changed the subject and wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> he saw where it was going and he didn't want to go there, you see. But uh, it does go there. It does go to the cross. It does say that God will bear the stroke. So God's identified with his people, not only as a caring shepherd, but he's identified with his people as he stands on the rock in the prisoner's dock and the blow descends so that the water of life can flow to Israel. Okay, we'll, uh, we'll stop at this point.